travellers. Welcome to Podcast 8 of You Should Have Been There with me, Mick Webb. And me, Simon Calder. And today we are looking ahead to the 2020s. Of course, a start of a decade, a very good time to um, be considering what there is on the travel horizon. Um, and I've been doing quite a lot of work on this, Mick, for, us, for a change. I, on the other hand, have done very little research. Um, but I suppose if I was to look ahead to the next 10 years of travel, I would see hanging over it or influencing everything, um, the question of carbon footprints. Well, you've obviously been looking at my, my um, 2030 entry, because uh, that uh, will, will become, um, uh, I, I think, the point at which there might be some great transformation in travel although frankly i doubt it I, and it's pretty certain that through the 2020s we will be continuing in our normal squandering harmful travel ways but maybe maybe we'll become a bit more local i've been looking though very very global okay well um well, let's start with um, this particular year, 2020. What uh, what can we expect? Divisible by four, therefore, of course, an Olympics year. And we're returning to Tokyo, where, of course, the Olympics are going to be held back end of um, July, beginning of August. Now, I'm pretty confident I will be able to get a cheap air ticket to Tokyo immediately after the opening ceremony come back before the closing ceremony and in the meantime being a in a city which is en fait but uh and, and obviously lots of events around which i won't have tickets for and i have no uh, possibility of getting to the um, men's 100 olympic finals unless i start training very quickly um and it, in indeed uh, i'll just be enjoying a fairly empty city at a time of um, of great excitement and enjoying the very low prices that come with that because all olympics pretty much this century have had the same characteristics basically it goes like this the hoteliers the airlines think we're going to make an absolute mint <coughs> on the olympics and therefore we're going to put the prices up some people will pay those but most of the time it just scares people off and that means that with about sort of, between six weeks and three weeks to go, they panic and start cutting prices, and that's what I'm relying on. I might be wrong, but let's talk through them. Sydney, Athens, Beijing, London, Rio, you could have done exactly the same thing, and you would have done very well indeed. Are you tempted? And more widely, what do you think Olympics do for a city? Well, I tend not to visit the Olympics very much. I watch a bit of it on telly and obviously when we had the 2012s here in London I did enter for the ballot and I did actually get tickets to see tennis which was rather brilliant. I'm quite interested in um, tennis. I play to um, a quite spectacularly low standard myself and I have been to Wimbledon for the, the, the big championships before but to actually go to Wimbledon to see an Olympic event was quite brilliant because it was 
more like a football match than it was like the very restrained and well-mannered um, tennis event. And I actually um, was lucky enough to get tickets to see Andy Murray beat Djokovic uh, when both of them were really um, on top of their games. And it was like uh, watching, uh, I was going to say an England side, but a UK side play Serbia because there was a huge contingent of Serbian fans shouting, Serbia, Serbia, Serbia. And we were shouting things back. I can't remember what now. But anyway, Andy prevailed. So that was great. But that is actually the only time I've ever had any direct involvement in the Olympics other than cursing road closures and the like, which have um, made my daily um, commute difficult. All right. Well, let's talk about cities where the Olympics have been transformational. And the first one I would go back to is actually Tokyo, 1964, where, if I'm not mistaken, they actually brought in the bullet train to celebrate. And this was less than 20 years after, uh, of course, Japan was um, defeated in the Second World War, the uh, atomic bombs in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And yet there we were less than 20 years later and the... uh, the Japanese capital had come back, and I think that was really important symbolically. Um, How did they manage to do it? I mean, in such a short space of time, and should they be um, brought in to do HS2? Well, you, you, maybe, but but then the next notable one I would say would be 1992 Barcelona. Barcelona. Ah, well, yes, I agree. Um, yeah. Which was uh, well, I mean, even then it was 17 years after the death of. Uh, Franco or something, yeah. but finally uh, Barcelona was um, allowed to blossom and hasn't looked back since. Do you think that the the legacy, which is always um, <laughs> a big part of um, Olympic uh, PR anyway, and certainly planning uh, and pitching, has that worked in Barcelona? No, oh, I think I think it did. Um, that was all part of the amazing transformation which saw. At the same time, I think Seville was uh, had, had Expo, Madrid was capital of culture, and it all kind of came together. They opened the Arve high-speed rail links and so on. So, so yeah, I, th- I think that that was uh, you can say '92 was a transformative year, um, and since then, well, you know, Atlanta didn't do anything for Atlanta. Well, it put Atlanta on the map, and since then, Atlanta has been back in the box. Um, I like the city, but. Uh, it's not made any any significant um, impression on the tourism map of the world. It was one of those kind of aberrations, an outlier. OK, so uh, Olympics, there we are. 2021, I will be closer to home because we are assured that by next year there will be self-driving buses. Um, they will be shuttling across the fourth road bridge between Edinburgh and the kingdom, as it must be called, of Fife, um, half a million uh, passengers a year. Um, there is, disappointingly, if you like the idea of a driverless bus, going to be a driver on the bus, but they're kind of there to reassure the passengers and um, uh, comply with uh, various safety laws. Um, and I suppose that's the that's sort of start of a transportation revolution of some sort. Isn't it? Getting yeah, rid of drivers? I think um, so. I mean, I, I remember going on the Docklands Light Railway in London for the first time and, and actually marvelling along with all the tourists um, at the fact that there was 
no driver on the but, thing. But, yeah. um, that's a closed network with, um, uh, with with rails, which I always find would help. Yeah, I, I can see it. Oh, yes, well, it, the, it did feel a lot safer, I must I, say, than it would have done if uh, it had been on the open road. And and um, I, uh, on the occasions that I've been lucky enough to be to get a cab ride, um, as they say in the railway business, which is actually sitting in the cab with the driver. <laughs> your, your main thought is. But he or she doesn't have a steering wheel, um, yeah, which obviously yeah. you don't need. But where there is, the, you would expect a steering wheel to be, there's just a big nothing. Anyway. But, but the um, bus will have a steering wheel, uh, I take well, it. I, theoretically, of course, it doesn't need one, but I bet it does, with, uh, together with a hopefully well-paid driver who's um, staying awake and uh, there just in case. Um, uh, okay, so that's in 2021. Yeah, and 2022. Um the tallest building in the world at the moment is the Burj Khalifa on the north side of the uh, Arabian Peninsula in Dubai. By 2022, it should be the Jeddah Tower on the Red Sea coast, so the south side of the Arabian Peninsula in the big Saudi Arabian city. It's going to be a one kilometre high, although I th- I'm expecting the the actual sort of high highest one third to be mostly decoration and um, uh, transmitter masts and so on. The observation deck is going to be two thirds of the way to the top. Um, they'll also have the highest hotel in the world, and you can join me there because the E visa has been introduced finally for Saudi Arabia. Costs a hundred pounds, very easy to get, and then you can go in. Um, obviously, it's perhaps life there is more easy for male travellers than it is for female and talking of great new things India which has the I think the greatest transport undertaking in the world in the shape of the uh, Indian railways well what it hasn't had so far is high speed rail and it's finally going to get that the first high speed line will run north from Mumbai to Ahmedabad two hours it will take uh, speeds of um, getting on for 200 miles an hour and it will transform railway experience in India. And knowing India, it will also be very good value. Are you, are you tempted to get across there? Well, I am tempted to go there. I haven't managed to do it so far. I wouldn't be particularly tempted by a high-speed railway because, call me romantic, but the idea <laughs> of the old uh, Darjeeling um, Express still does rather appeal to me, uh, however uncomfortable it might be. Yes, pottering slowly across the countryside, stopping any number of times, often not at stations at all, and uh, plenty of chance to uh, talk to people and um, get off and generally enjoy the landscape. Okay, well, uh, you won't be at all interested in Hyperloop then, which is the other great development uh, transportation in terms of railways. Let me just tell you what the idea is. Basically, you've got a vacuum tube, the Air pressure is reduced to about a thousandth of the norm. You've then got an electromagnetic track inside and you've got passenger carrying capsules, so like little aeroplanes. You travel at 500 miles an hour, but the great thing is you're doing it terrestrially. You don't need to fly. and The vacuum tubes can be laid under, over or on the ground. Richard Branson is involved in this. He's got a uh, uh, test track in Nevada, and the idea is that you transport people more quickly in bigger numbers and more conveniently than uh, any other train network. 
And the reason why it's relevant for India is that um, at the same time they're building this high-speed link, they're also looking at a hyperloop link between Mumbai and the city of Pune, which is um, just inland. There are an average of 150 journeys a minute every hour of every day of the year on that particular city pair. So the market is there and they want to reduce the time to, um, well, less less than half an hour for a journey of um, well over 100 miles. So that, that will be an interesting development. Well, it certainly sounds impressive. Yeah. And 2024, um, another, well, a high-speed travel, but a centenary, the centenary of the motorway. Now, you're much more of a motorhead than I am. I think that's always been the case. Um, so will you be able to tell me where the motorway was first invented anywhere uh, in the world? Well, I would guess um, either... Italy or Germany, but um, I think I'll go for Italy. That's extremely good. I was—I would have thought America or Germany until I started looking into it. So, so whereabouts and why did you say Italy? Because um, I have actually travelled on some Italian motorways, um, which were interesting because of the quite astonishing feats of engineering. But there's a particular motorway that runs between. Oh God, it goes through the across the Apennines um, would it be from Milan to Florence anyway I've done that journey and it what was interesting was how ancient it looked um, and also the fact that the Italians celebrated um, all of these different um, bridges and viaducts and tunnels everything had a name and its and its exact length was um, the, you know so the via dotto Giulio Cesare and things like that um, length 733 metres I was very impressed by that and uh, I must have asked someone who said yeah I said is this really as old as it looks and they said yes I think and I don't know which was the first motorway but um, oh, anyway well we're well, talking I, I, Italy I can anyway. help you with that I mean say what you like about Piero Puricelli um, but he was the man who put together the revolutionary at the time idea of a road exclusively for motor vehicles so they could drive at the optimum speed there wouldn't be any obstructions slowing down sharp bends that that would save on fuel and wear and tear and everybody would be happier and the very first autostrada was from milan to the lakeside town of varese uh, ah. opened by the italian king so Pre-Mussolini. Pre-Mussolini, well, yeah. Um, right. 1924, yeah. of course. Um, well worth going to Varese. Lots of Art Nouveau architecture. Um, but I'd probably get there on the train if I were you, rather than the um, uh, dodgy old motorway. Um, another centenary, uh, well, a, a, a half millennium indeed. Five centuries in 2025 since the foundation of an English colony on the Caribbean island of Barbados. And... Uh, not an island you've been to in the Caribbean? Uh, no, I haven't been to very many, but um, Tobago uh, I went to not that long ago and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I, I don't know Barbados very well. Um, I've often tried to find a Caribbean island. Um, but this is just research, but I mean, uh, you know, look, looking it up online, um, uh, which combines... 
two things. One is um, good snorkeling with um, uh, a bit of mountain or volcano, cloud forest, so you can also um, bird watch there. So I've that's my ideal. Um, and there are actually surprisingly few islands which combine very good snorkeling and very good bird watching. Um, okay, well, I'm really interested in the whole nation, uh, the, in the fact that you didn't mention heritage. Um, yeah. That, because, I mean, the, the um, uh, Barbados has huge amounts of heritage in the, in the sense of the, uh, well, the Barbados Parliament opened, I believe, 1639, built from coral stone. Bad, bad thing now, but, uh, but there it was. Lots of mansions created for the uh, sugar barons and a little bit of um, 20, 20th century uh, heritage you've actually got one of the few surviving concords parked next to the uh, <laughs> main airport in Barbados I think the only airport in Barbados uh, which you can go and look at when your flight back to Gatwick is unfortunately delayed at least you've got um, a supersonic jet you can you can take a look at Oh, well, that's... Um, yeah, yeah, no, that, that would be nice to know. I mean, what, my first in visit to a Caribbean island was entirely by accident. Um, uh-huh. I uh, had a rather odd job on um, uh, as an ultrasonics engineer's mate, um, which was, um, I say, like you do, I suppose, is what people say. And uh, um, me and a guy called Chris um, travelled round... Um, checking rather unseaworthy um, ships to see whether they were so unseaworthy that it wasn't worth the owners putting them in for Lloyd's tests, uh, which was the very expensive test to see whether they were sea. It's like a pre-MOT, I I think we might call it now. Only on a a very different scale, so so that uh, you you might say to me, um, right, well, so have a look at me brakes and me lights and, and so on, and I'd say... I wouldn't, wouldn't even bother putting that through. So that was what you were doing, but on a grand and on, paid... On a uh, grand uh, and, uh, and paid scale. Yeah. And I ended up on a Norwegian bulk carrier, which uh, uh, was a chartered ship, and it was supposed to be going from um, New Orleans to Mobile, mm-hmm. which nobody was looking forward to uh, in the crew because they'd been to Mobile, which is... Uh, it's hard to think of anything good to say yeah. about it. An oil town which has been rubbished by various songwriters, including um, Bob Dylan, um, if I remember rightly. Uh, uh, yes, uh, uh, being stuck inside uh, of Mobile. Mobile with the Memphis Blues again. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, the sailing orders were changed at the last minute and we went instead... Um, to Antigua. Because, oh, of course, you had to be ultrasonically testing. You, you, they couldn't just park the thing. No, we had and, to be doing it as it, yeah, as it went along. It was, it was a most extraordinary and brilliant um, few weeks. And yeah. anyway, uh, the best bit by far was going to uh, basically being in Antigua uh, and having finished our um, ultrasonics engineering and then having just missed the weekly BA flight back to the UK. So we actually had a whole week, me and Chris, in Antigua, which was utterly wonderful. And uh, it was, uh, I think it was the first time I'd been anywhere where I was the only, well, we were the only whites on the island. I mean, we weren't, but it appeared to be like that. And uh, and, uh, going to... um, eat in rum and drink in rum bars in St John's was a most extraordinary and brilliant um, experience. With I remember in, in, a, in one particular place, Chris and I were 
serenaded by the local Calypso singer who sang in patois various things which made everybody else laugh <laughs> so much that they fell off their stools. Uh, and indeed, it was uh, when we found out later, it was references to our um, manhood, I suppose <laughs> I would call it. Anyway, it was all very funny and good humoured and a terrific time. But uh, so, yeah, uh, but I've never been to Barbados. So. <laughs> Twenty twenty six. Then uh, uh, I'm talking about two minutes in that year, uh, maybe three. Um, the height of the European holiday season, you're going to get a total eclipse of the sun, and the path of totality begins in the Arctic, crosses Greenland and Iceland, and then um, it sweeps across northern Spain. Um, so it goes from uh, makes landfall in Bilbao. Then it goes to Zaragoza over Valencia. And we're talking here about actual big cities, big and wonderful cities, being um, very much in the line of totality. Uh, uh, what uh, time of year? It's so, it, so right it's in the middle of the holiday season, so 12th so, of August. Yes. And, very, and, of course, a very sun-blessed country yes. as well. And, and so and it'll be much more, much well, more so. noticeable. And, yes. Ah, well, I've got some friends who um, live in Mallorca. Uh, maybe I've got time to make them even better friends yes. before this. Oh, when was it? 90, uh, uh, sorry, 20, 12th of August, 2026. 20, okay. Um, now, as you all appreciate, uh, the later... It gets in the 20s, the less visibility there is. Um, we already know that... When you mean visibility... Of what's going to be happening. You mean of what's going to be happening, yeah, and, and quite rather than anything of, to do with the eclipse. Air quality as well. Oh, well, and uh, the air... So, so crucially, you've got um, the railway, the high-speed... Two will not be open by then. We we were expecting it to be, but it won't be. And neither will the runway at the third runway at Heathrow be open. What we are told is will... that definitely going ahead. No, of course it's not definitely going <laughs> ahead. No. Um, and uh, uh, it hasn't gone ahead for the last forty years. Why would it go ahead for the next forty years? But one one piece of infrastructure which we are told will be back and running is the rail link between Oxford and Cambridge, and this will be about 60 years after the old railway line was ripped up, um, and it will mean that you'll be able to travel between them in about an hour or so. Currently, if you were going to go by bus, and I think there is one, it's called the X5, that takes uh, two and a half hours, um, the train also. Um, but this is going to connect the two cities, which will be good, but also take you to top uh, travel tourism attractions such as um, Bletchley Park where which was the home of the Second World War codebreakers of course yeah no I can see that as being quite a nice touristic package but it does make you think doesn't it that uh, uh, the phrase reinventing the wheel couldn't never be more appropriately applied <laughs> than it is to the travel and transport uh, sector <laughs> yes um, and uh, we're well, talking of which 2028 um, reinventing the Los Angeles Olympics, the uh, uh, Southern Californian city last stage of the Games. I'm going to ask you to guess. Uh, the, the, when it last staged yeah. them? Oh, yeah. oh, um, oh, there was one in Atlanta which was, uh, okay, 82. No, no, sorry, 80. No, that was that was Moscow. Uh, the 1980, uh, controversial 1980 I would just um, Yeah, no, 1984. So. Oh, well, that's... Oh, I, I, I call that a, I call <laughs> that a win, a near <laughs> miss. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, usual, usual comments about the Olympic supply. Um, but what's going to be interesting is 
that hopefully by then there will be more high-speed trains. Maybe the Californian high-speed rail link to San Francisco or the um, Virgin trains link to um, the Las Vegas. We will see. Um, by 2029, it was getting quite quite hazy indeed. Uh, 200th <laughs> anniversary, we know, of the Swan River Colony, um, now better known as, as Perth and Fremantle oh, in Western well, Australia. My, uh, one of my brothers lives um, and has done for 30-odd years. Oh, well, one departing mariner wrote, and this is in the uh, excellent Shipwrecks Museum in Fremantle, um, wrote as he was leaving, farewell to the miserable Southland. Um, I don't know if your brother feels like that. Um, well, he's at the moment, um, like many uh, Australian city dwellers, mostly worried about... Um, bushfires but um yeah i'll ask him okay. i i believe perth is generally i mean um, a rather nice kind of place and uh, and that the only thing that normally concerns you is uh, sharks if you want to be uh, surfing well uh, yeah um, so i mean uh, australia is full of all kinds of natural hazards spiders crocodiles etc toads um, to- toads yes um, many of which are to be found in your brother's backyard i understand but but on the subject of nature, well, here we are. Here's man uh, imposing nature on the world. 2030, the completion date, at least that's planned, for a 5,000-mile swathe of woodland going right across Africa from Senegal in the west uh, to Eritrea in the east. So this is called the Great Green Wall Project, and the idea is you plant millions and millions of trees and that transforms the Sahel which is the region at the south of the Sahara Desert which lots of people have been worried was turning itself into into desert Um, you build local resilience to climate change Um, you create 10 million jobs and people will flock as travelers to see the uh, changing face of Africa and the largest living structure on the planet, which is what the Great Green Wall will be when it is fully grown. Well, that would be a decent walk, wouldn't it, across or along the Great Green Wall? Oh, it would. 5,000 uh, 5, miles. That would put so, into perspective our puny attempts to get along the Pyrenees from um, the uh, Atlantic to the um, You say that, so 25 miles a day would be, because most of it is fairly flat, 25 miles a day would be not unreasonable, um, which means that you should be able to do the whole thing in about 200 days, which... Well, if we're still walking or still here um yeah. i'll we'll make a date for that mind uh, you this is is this this is the beginning of the project is it no, or the no, end of it it's, it's, it's going to be yeah, ended yeah you can actually already go and see, see bits of the green well, yes. yeah uh, so so yeah. that's the idea and i think that will be a a, a a most welcome thing as will easyjet which is planning by then to be flying electric aircraft on short haul routes there, there is an electric i mean there are such things as electric aircraft, aren't well, there, at well, the moment? Well, there are, but it's, it's, the big question is actually getting them to be a, a, a feasible commercial success. Because, yes, you can, you can fill a, an aircraft fuselage full of batteries and, and just about get it off the ground and get it to fly around, and that's, that's very good. But the trouble is um, aviation fuel is extremely energy-dense, which is useful, 
and then when you've burnt it it's not there anymore so you don't have to fly it around batteries are not at all energy dense and they stay there so you're going to have to fly these these batteries around whatever happens what what easyjet is doing and they're working with a, a partner in the in the u.s many of course different organizations trying to get these things running they're saying it's only going to be for you know, short hauls that such as gatwick to amsterdam so a distance of yeah, roughly yeah. 200 miles so you might be flying to um Tenerife on on an electric plane for many years to come. Well, a, a, a packed um, decade. Yeah, packed decade, yes, but I think probably in this time, uh, ten, ten years' time, most of us will still be doing most of the same travel things in pretty much the same way. Or in our case, or my case, a bit more slowly. <laughs> and before we say goodbye, the next podcast, well, let, let, let's decide now. Um, I've got two suggestions, Go the ups and downs of the travel writer and Kazakhstan, everything you need to know about it. Yes. Now, I think I've got an advantage over you for Kazakhstan, which is that I've been there. Yeah, but I was just going to ask you questions about it. Okay, fantastic. I, I, I'm going to accept your ups and downs of a travel writer, um, and that's a great idea. And I'm going to modify your second idea to Central Asia, quite a lot of things that you might want to know about it. Fair enough. Which one should we do then? Let's go back in time. So the ups and downs of the travel writer. It's a deal. So from uh, me, Mick Webb. And me, Simon Calder. You should have been there. Goodbye. Goodbye.